Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is episode 100 of the MTF podcast. And because that feels like quite a milestone, I wanted to look back over the past couple of years, pull out some highlights and favourite moments, not as a greatest hits, because that doesn't really make any sense in that context. Every single one of these are my favourite episode, but more to create something of a taster show, something that highlights the breadth and depth of the MTF community and the brilliant minds of the artists and scientists, academia and industry that go to make up that community. And of course, you're only ever really going to skim across the surface in something like this. And the whole point of the MTF podcast is to get to know these amazing people in our community rather than just get them to talk about their work. But maybe there's something in here that piques your curiosity and encourages you to dive in a bit further. I'll tell you who's talking along the way so you can go back and find their episode, but hopefully this will also make for an enjoyable compilation listen all by itself. It's not a catalogue, but a bird's eye view of MTF. From neuroscience to embroidery, digital sampling to government policy, AI ethics to storytelling, pop stardom to climate change, space travel to fashion design, and all the wonderful characters and human stories that connect them. This is the MTF podcast, episode 100. But more importantly, this is MTF. Enjoy. Let's start with a few words from Abba's Björn Alvaeus. One of the things that people observe about your songs is that, on the one hand, obviously they're incredibly catchy pop songs, but also they're incredibly intricate and, and thoughtful and complex. Yeah. Um, to what extent is, is there a kind of a, is that the ABBA trick? Is that there, there, is, uh, there is the complexity hidden within this simplicity of melody? Always searching for that wonderful, simple melody. Uh-huh. That's what we did. But that wonderful, simple melody doesn't necessarily have only three chords. It can have more chords. And, and especially if you explore it in a studio trying various styles and trying various ways of doing it and above all backing vocals intricate backing vocals uh, things that you couldn't write down as an arranger but you can only try you know you're doing something the girls would do something and you'd say no try that instead just that note there and suddenly something happens right and that's where the intricacy comes from, I think. Right. In harmony, particularly. In, in harmony, particularly. Right. Well, This is Dr. Kelly Snook, inventor, instrument maker, and rocket scientist. Kepler says something in this book, which is really funny, and I'm just going to paraphrase because he writes in, you know, 400 years ago language. But um, he says something like, I'm laying this out for you. God has finally revealed his, his grand order through this mathematics use your arts to express this in the world. And I've laid it out there, even if it takes 100 years for technology to catch up, basically. And it's been 400 years, and technology is just at the point where we can make this into something that you can experience viscerally, like with your ears and with your eyes and and maybe other senses as well, like feeling tactile feedback from this instrument. But that is the whole point is to take something that has been reduced to boring mathematical equations and make it make it mind-blowing again. And I worked for a very long time at NASA 
And there's something weird about the way that we present things sometimes, which, especially to other scientists, <laughs> that if, you're, if, if it's super freaking cool, then it's for the kids, or it's not actual science, or, you know, like you kind of have to make it sound dry and boring in order for it to be legitimate, in a way. And um, so I kind of wanted to switch that up a bit and, you know, give people permission to experience the, the incredible intrinsic harmony that we have in our, in our reality. One place where it's expressed just so simply is, is in the movement of the planets. But it's really everywhere in, in, in every structure that we have in life. And so eventually I'd love there to be musical instruments that you can play or that you can experience that give you insights into all sorts of different um, kind of truths through beauty. <laughs> these, are, these are both, in a way, these are both co concepts that have gone out of fashion. Truth and beauty. Like, truth, people are even asking, what is truth? Is there a such thing as truth? Does truth matter? <laughs> you know, this is actually a conversation that's happening in the United States. <laughs> there's like, you know, people are claiming that it's, it actually, there's no truth. It doesn't matter. Former executive assistant and right hand to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, Yahoo CEO Marissa Mayer, and Google CEO Eric Schmidt, and Hyatt. I took it very, very seriously to double their output, and that meant I needed to be on par with what they were doing. Um, in the early stages, I did that by reading everything they read. For example, Jeff Bezos every morning came in with three newspapers, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Seattle Times. So I started reading all three of those every morning cover to cover. I read every briefing document that came across his desk, every single email, listened to every phone call. I leaned in. I Googled every term I didn't know, every person's name who I didn't know. And so going on to that next level allowed me to be more proactive in my relationship with him instead of reactive. I could come to him with ideas, opportunities, um, and even share some of my talents he didn't know I had or areas of interest where I would volunteer for a project that would normally be outside my role. And that gave me an amazing opportunity to really grow. And the job was so much more fun, too. I mean, nobody wakes up excited about calendaring or putting together, you know, research documents, things like that. But um, so my role with Eric Schmidt was very much that. It was extremely proactive. It was very high risk because my job was to aggregate all of the requests across the company, evaluate those for where Eric could have a deep impact, and um, rank those and make a recommendation to him on how he was going to spend his time or focus or maybe a, a weakness that we had and an area of expertise we hadn't yet developed and come with a proactive plan of how we could get that knowledge or those relationships that we needed. And so it very much became a business partner relationship with him. And that's where it's really fun. Also terrifying because sometimes you get it wrong and it's a billion dollar company. Um, so the impact is large um, in successes and failures. Um, but that was a, a risk I enjoyed. Probably my favorite recording artist in the world today, the wonderful Jan Bang. In the mid nineties, I um, found by coincidence a way of putting my studio gear on stage. Being a producer in the, in the mid-90s, using samplers in order to, you know, to create songs and do remixes and productions and, and so forth. Um, I was invited by a friend of mine. I just had done a remix of Bugge Wesseltoft, the Norwegian jazz player. And he was interested in, in getting in touch with people from the electronic music. So he asked me, Jan, what could you do? 
<laughs> I was thinking, well, I have this uh, sampler that somebody gave me. Why don't I, instead of sampling records, I could sample your musicians on stage? And that was in 96. And um, we did one concert, and I, I, I realized in the sound check that this is just a new route. This is a new possibility for, for myself to discover new things. So it's like fresh sounds every day, like fresh from the baker. Uh, and as a, as a composer and as a, as a musician, that's uh, quite a present. So then I, you know, by meeting uh, him, then he introduced me to other more free-form players. And uh, from there, I, <laughs> I never really returned to the studio that I was working with and not working in as a producer. I just left the studio, my big American case and <laughs> everything with it. Academic Gabriella Coleman. So a trickster figure is probably familiar to, to most just because trickster figures um, are common in many different societies and cultures around the world from coyote and, and kind of indigenous Native American societies um, to Loki and Nordic societies, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, they're figures who are willing to transgress boundaries. Um, they tend to also be identified with an inability to kind of filter speech, often willing to trap others and in the process get trapped themselves into problems. And historically, they, they, they tend to be identified with myth and stories. And the myth and stories around tricksters are valuable because they tend to offer moral lessons, both about the importance of transgressing boundaries, but also the problems when you go too far in transgressing boundaries as well. Um, they're a rich area of anthropological study. And I thought, and I still do, think that they apply extremely well to the field of hacking or anonymous. And it's again, because of the willingness of hackers to transgress boundaries. And so I think that that model fits well. Uh, I think one of the big problems, and this gets to the baggage part, is that in part because of like the Disneyfication of the trickster figure, I think some people believe tricksters are always good. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, the point of the trickster is to make clear the moral stakes of transgressing boundaries, let's just say. Hmm. And then because of that clarity, you could say, oh, this is good, this is helpful, no, this is bad, this goes too far. And for example, Loki, I think, is a, a good example of a, a trickster who, I mean, he's terrifying and he's a jerk and he's horrible, right? Mm -hmm. This is not necessarily someone to celebrate, whereas Puck, on the other side, right, um, is a much lighter um, side of, of tricksterism that we can live with, right? right? Much more fluffy. Exactly. And the world of hacking has, has, has both sides, right? Right. And so I use the figure not simply to celebrate hacking, but actually to show that this domain, like the trickster figure, provides an arena for us to rethink questions of boundaries and norms, not simply to blindly accept everything that comes from the world of hacking. 
composer and polymath Nitin Sawney. I mean, music is a healing kind of thing for, from my point of view. Um, I was listening to Marianne Hobbs' show last night and she played um, actually a piece that I did with uh, Anushka Shankar for, for uh, Ravi Shankar's centenary. And she played some beautiful music, I mean, very, which I found really soothing. And I'd been in a difficult mood all day um, because I'd, I just was getting frustrated with all of this. I mean, I'm, I'm um, kind of, I'm not, not technically in a high risk group, but I am asthmatic. And so I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm keeping myself pretty much in isolation. And so from that point of view, um, it's, it's great when you hear music that opens up your feelings and your mind like that. Mm-hmm. So um, music is, I mean, you know, there is, there is a lot of, you could get into the technical side of it. And, and um, you know, there are parts of the brain that respond literally in a, in a pleasurable way to, to music. And um, there's a part of the brain called oscillatory phase lock, which, um, which they find in chimpanzees as well, um, where they respond like we do to consonants and dissonance in different ways. So dissonant intervals in music actually create uh, unrest and, uh, and irritation. Um, so, um, you know, but whereas with the chimpanzees, they, they actually respond really well to consonant intervals. So Mozart, for example, would go down really well with a lot of chimpanzees because a lot of the intervals are consonant intervals. Um, so, so it's kind of, you know, it's, and, and that's to do with the ratios and so on. But I mean, it's kind of, it's very, um, you know, it's it's very soothing and very healing to listen to great music that you can empathise with. I mean, it's not just the technical side, it's also nostalgia. It's also, you know, it evokes so much feeling in us, Where, whereas in animals, primarily, they're using music for survival, reproduction and communication. We're using it in so many different nuanced ways to actually mm-hmm. really uh, enhance our moods. And in fact, I talked um, recently about, um, and I was talking to a psychologist um, uh, about um, the idea of EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and that um, that in itself is about left right, um, uh, I, I suppose, stimulation. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of the hemispheres of the brain, and and uh, it's alternating from, uh, in the way it works. And and she was um, my psychologist was saying even walking or running or playing the piano or doing anything where you use your hands in alternating ways can can actually really enhance your mood and do a lot for working through uh, problems that you have in your life. Textile artist and Arctic crafter. Deirdre Nelson. I was involved in a lab in Glasgow and um, I've forgotten the name of it now, but um, they brought together coders and makers together and mm. we, we did separate projects and um, and it was an amazing way to work because we realised in loads of ways we, we work in very similar way. I mean, I think there's a real craft to, you know, working with, um, you know, uh, coding and working with um, Arduino and all of these things and through being involved in the repair lab in Glasgow I've realised that you know I watched some of these guys fix computers and um, and electronic you know they, they're working with their hands in a really skilled way and in a you know particularly something like embroidery is very fine-tuned skills and I can see those same skills in the guys working on circuit boards or um, so I think maybe some maybe we need to do a circumpolar tech traditional skill lab or something would be fantastic yeah. um it sounds like something music tech we should take on yeah, yeah. definitely it would be amazing because yeah. and and also just i think with any of these things you need time to experiment uh, 
So, you know, just and the informality of, say, the way we worked in the Circumpolar Crafters Network would be a really lovely way to work with technology as well. Maker and children's author Helen Lee. Handmade things and how that fits in with technology. I mean, often in the media you'll see them pitted against each other, you know, robots versus craft or... Um, you know, handmade versus mass-produced. But I actually think that's a false dichotomy um, and that there's so many beautiful things happening um, in the intersection between craft um, and technology. And I really wanted to write a children's book that um, celebrated that and used craft as a way into technology and technology as a way to augment craft. Um, because it's not a one-way street, of course. You only have to look at a knitting pattern, and, and mm. this is this is programming. Absolutely, it's programming. And in fact, um, I, I think often these um, these crafts are undervalued, and and the history of them is kind of destroyed. There's a this fascinating book that I um, read recently called the subversive stitch and it's all about the feminist history of embroidery Um, and also you know I've read a really interesting article on um, knitting spies so in the World War II um, they had ladies knitting things and dropping stitches to um, to pass secret messages onto other people it was a form of communication of course it's code you know um, so anyway, this book is called The Crafty Kids Guide to DIY Electronics, and it teaches the basic concepts of technology, um, but through um, sewing and through papercraft and origami and through DIY robots and wearable things. Um, it's very much like project-based. It's not a textbook at all. I mean, you do learn something in every project, but it's set in the context of a project. Um, things like making a, um, a moving origami ladybird that buzzes around or um, a secret mood signal badge um, that teaches you the basic concepts of binary. Um, so these kind of imaginative projects, and I can't actually take full credit for all of these projects. I worked with an advisory board of 200 girls to write this book. Um, and they were on my mailing list and I would send them hundreds of ideas and they'd come back and vote on their favourite ones. So actually the inclusion of every single project in that book um, is thanks to a group of, of girls and not thanks to me at all. In fact, lots of my favourite ideas were completely uh, <laughs> designated uncool by, um, by the committee oh, of girls. Yeah. <laughs> Musician and technologist Tim Palm, a.k.a. DJ Arthro. Uh, yeah, so my diagnosis, uh, basically, uh, it makes my joints uh, uh, unable to move. It's at like 30 degrees movements, like in arms and legs. Uh-huh. And because of that, my muscles also uh, loosen strength. Right. So it's like a two-part uh, situation. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm sitting on a uh, like special-built wheelchair, and I'm performing, performing with my nose, uh, mostly. Right. Right, so you have sort of limited range of motion of the limbs, yeah. um, but uh, a, a flexible face. Yeah, so, yeah. So you can actually so uh, like operate gear like that. So let's talk about your gear. Yeah. Um, so, I, okay, somebody like me who recognises that it's an iPad, but not necessarily the software that you're using, what's actually in the rig? Uh, so if we start with the iPad. Sure. Uh, the main application is called Touchable. Mm-hmm which is an app built to integrate with Ableton, which is like the main software I use. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's fully integrated, so I can control the MIDI software, can control the CC and the yeah, everything, like mm-hmm. fully functional, launching clips and changing BPM and everything. And I can rearrange it 
however I want. So if I want big buttons, I can get big buttons if I want. Right. So I have this like template that I use to perform. Okay. But there's more going on than an iPad. On yeah, the yeah. Th- th- then I have, a, oh, it's, it's, it's a big one. It's like a half circle of gear. Uh, yeah, you're sort of, it's, it's right around, it's like Rick Wakeman kind of. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a synth as well. It's the Yamaha Reface synth, which is the only synth I've found with uh, no knobs, only like up and down sliders. Uh-huh. Uh, because turning knobs with your lips is quite difficult. I can imagine. Like, you can't make a 360 with your head. That's true. That's yeah. impossible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So having this uh, just up and down sliders for everything. Uh-huh. Like uh, gives me full control over the synth. Yep. Uh, and I found it like four years ago now, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to buy this one yeah. because uh, it's quite boring to just have this uh, software synth. Yeah. Science fiction author, blogger, and activist Corey Doctorow. If we want to know how Google shapes our behavior, it's by being the only search engine anyone uses and deciding what goes on the front page. But that's not mind control. You know, that's that's just like, that's a, a very cheap trick if it's a mentalist act. That's like the mentalists who have hidden cameras that watch, you know, what, what people write down on the, car, on the card when they say, you know, think of a word and write it down on the card. You know, it's a bit of technological virtuosity, mm-hmm. but it's not mind reading, yeah, yeah. right? So I, I think that like big tech wants you to think the reason that their sector is concentrated is because first mover advantage and network effects and globalism are what are what count and i think it's that the apple 2 plus came out the year we elected ronald reagan and he promptly dismantled antitrust enforcement right like if it was first mover advantage and network effects we'd all be searching alta vista with our cray supercomputers right like like one of the things that we know about tech is that you can accumulate a technology debt right like if you are married to a certain approach in technology when the technology changes you have this this huge institutional crisis in convincing the people who work in your firm to stop making supercomputers and start making mini computers and stop making mini computers and start making PCs. These are like huge problems that firms wrestle with and being a first mover sucks and network effects are great, but you live and die by the sword. If your network doubles in value every time someone joins it, then it halves in value every time someone leaves it, which is how MySpace can be on top of the world one day and on the trash heap the next day with Rupert Murdoch sitting on top of it with his thumb up his ass. Is this the safety net for something like Facebook having all this power? Uh, is, is it the fact that there is a fragility built into these things? No, because this is where monopolies matter, right? Right. So Facebook lost 17 million uh, uh 12 to 34 year olds in 2017 up from 9 million, I think in 2016, they are hemorrhaging users to Instagram. Right. Which they own, which they own. Professor of responsible AI, Virginia Dignam. AI is software is an artifact that people build. It's not magic. It's not something which happens to us. It's not something which comes out of uh, outer space and happens. It's something which is consciously developed and engineered by people to do uh, some purpose, which is also determined by people. So that is, I think, the most important uh, part to understand. Then how does it work? It's uh, What distinguishes it from other types of software is basically the capability that uh, these uh, techniques have to uh, be able to uh, analyze patterns in current uh, situations and current contexts and use that analysis to come up with potential uh, new uh, 
suggestions or new insights. I don't really like to talk about predictions. I don't think that AI makes any predictions whatsoever. It can correlate or extrapolate from existing data, but the prediction is something that we might or not decide to do ourselves based on what AI is uh, identifying. Philosopher, author, composer, multimedia producer, and turntablist, Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky. You are, you are not your data. I mean, the fun part about our time is there's a separation between analog media, you know, playing vinyl, going you know, up to social spaces with actual real human beings, and then the, the digital mirror that like, sort of people are just pillaging for, for financial gain. Um, so how does that work with uh, your everyday experience? I mean, this is something I think we're all kind of queasily realizing your your data is being used in all sorts of uh, unanticipated ways, whether it be for computational propaganda during the 2016 election, stuff like Cambridge Analytica, or the internet. In, um, uh, what was the IA group out of uh, Russia and St. Petersburg? I always, they have a very generic name, like the Internet Agency. Yeah. Something really, really <laughs> generic, but really freaking evil. So... Um, you know, that's on one hand, but then on the other hand, we've seen an explosion of all these platforms and routes for getting work out. More people are creative than ever before. More people are being freed from the norms of how they think about expressing their work or getting it out. So we're seeing a renaissance, uh, of many, many different approaches, but at the same time, the, uh, there's a Darwinism in effect with all these, you know, like I said, the furious five, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, five companies that dominate the landscape. Uh, meanwhile, if you're in China, you got the China uh, versions of those, Yuku, Alibaba, stuff like WhatsApp, et cetera. Yeah. Um, or we, Tencent, we chat. Sort of yeah. yeah. And I, I, I feel like as an artist, these are intriguing. I, I, I Personally, I could dig without social media. I would love to delete everything and just sit across from a person and have a glass of tea or whatever medium they, they're into and actually have a human dimension there. But you then realize, why limit yourself? Because you have all of these different platforms. Let's play. Senior data scientist at Axel Johnson, Celine Xu. 90% of the data in the world created after 2010. And all this abundance present a big problem, the paradox of the choice. Because we have so many choices, and we need to spend too much time trying to pick one. Uh-huh. And sometimes... We try so hard, but at the end, we actually pick something wrong. And the recommendation engine is actually use machine learning technology to help company go over all the possible options and learn what we or as a customer like and recommend the options we would love best. Uh, so this machine or system provide us an option, having the abundance of the options at the same time, have a certainty in our decision. Artist, teacher and instrument maker, Tom Fox. I wanted to start building instruments just because I loved collecting instruments. I've got a passion for lots of different types of instruments. Um, but um, I realised that if I start building them and I do it wrong, it might be a massive waste of money and resources. So I, I just started building them from recycled materials. And I really limited myself to just focusing on making sure everything was found or recycled or reclaimed. And that actually led me to be more creative with the stuff I was making. So I ended up using uh, recycled ele- electronics and motors for pickups. And that led to developing instruments based around the, f- the things I found as well. So I, I started a, 
whole organic process of building instruments based around the stuff I found. And um, yeah, sort of spiraled out of control from there. Because <laughs> most of the things that you make don't look like musical instruments. No, no, not at all. I mean, some of them do, but yeah. they're actually books that yeah. have been turned into guitars. Yeah. Or, you know, but, but typically speaking, I mean, I'm thinking of your spring thing. Yeah, the spring thing. I've, uh, there's, um, there's a law of physics, which is um, Faraday's law of electromagnetic induction. And that's my favorite law of physics because you can do all sorts of bonkers stuff with it. Um, it's how motors work, it's how speakers work, it's how electric guitar pickups work, and they all use the same bit of physics. So you can manipulate that piece of physics to have them all interact with each other to create really interesting sounds and um, really interesting ways of playing music as well. Head of operations at Ericsson One, Matilda George. We, we have seen that it's, it's three reasons why, why ideas or, or startups tend to fail. And one of them is that you develop something that no one wants. So for us, it's very important to also to support them with the business aspect. Because if we have a very creative and talented person who only wants to focus on the tech aspect, then we need to support them with, with other kinds of, of competences as well. And that is something that we are doing from Ericsson. Then we, we are bringing in a business person, for example, to help them with that. But also educating them on how you can do it in a very easy way. And it can be something like going out and asking people if they would buy or test your solution. So that's a very easy way to actually test the business case of it. But also, uh, one of the other three um, things that makes make ideas fail is that you you are mixing teams poorly. So you maybe you have a, a team of only developers. So you also need to think about. Uh, to to add in a person with another background, so business or design or HR or or something else, so that you you have the diversity within your own group when developing the technology from the beginning. And then uh, the third thing is that you lack focus. So, yeah, I think that it becomes your obsession. But I mean, if I have one idea, maybe I I found ten different things that I want to do around my idea. So I think that to really keep focus on what I need to do to get what I want with my idea. That's also a very important part of, of the journey in becoming, in going from idea to finally an emerging business. So that is the, the, the advice that we usually give to startups. Sound diplomat, Shane Shapiro. To me, what's great about music is how it impacts everything around it. You know, music is, music is a way to have a conversation about all sorts of things. Um, about getting to know each other better, about conflicts, um, trying to reduce conflict even, um, about equality uh, across gender, race, ethnic, discipline, so on and so forth. I think that, you know, music is a tool that we have. I think music and food are the only tools that we have where we can cross any boundary and still find something to unify us. Hmm. So, you know, for me... I believe that we 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 underestimate the power that music has, but yet we're using its power every day without recognizing without recognizing it. Mm. You know, even like, and it doesn't matter what political affiliation. Even Trump going on stage to songs he's not allowed to play, um, he's uniting people via music. Right, and 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 I think that's a that's an incredibly powerful thing. Whatever you believe in, you there is something positive that music can bring you. And we, if we recognize that better, if we create policies 
around that, um, then I think it can improve everyone's day to day. We would say senior recruiter or chief headhunter, but her business card simply said alchemist. Shalene Jada, formerly of Apple. I was was brought in, and that was that that trip to San Francisco, um, to work with the industrial design group. So that was the first uh, kind of official group that I worked with as a full-time employee with Apple. And that dominated most of my time. And so I was looking specifically at that time for industrial designers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it started. And as I was working as kind of a lone ranger with them, um, for, I'm trying to think, I don't even know if it was a year, um, people would kind of reach out saying, oh, she does creative. She does, she works with designers. Uh, can we have her over here? We're redoing the graphic design group. Can she come and work with us for a little bit? Um, so I went to work with graphic design, helped them. They were a splinter group of different external and internal teams. And some people wanted to leave and they didn't have a clear leader. They were looking to, to uh, find another kind of more creative leader. And that I was brought in to help them um, find that role. And then I started working with that group. And then I was kind of dividing my team, be- my time between industrial design and graphic design. And, and there were more things like that. iTunes came out of, I started working with iTunes Europe. That was like really almost a startup. It felt like a startup as the graphic design in some way felt like a startup as well because they were recreating it. So there was, when I think back at my, of my career, other than the industrial design group, some of this work really feels like you're starting a startup within a very established company, but it still has that essence of building something from something very small or nothing. Improviser, academic, author, and solo bassist, Steve Lawson. The experience of being on MySpace was one was a great learning experience. I, I joined MySpace in the same way that all musicians did, with this incredibly narcissistic focus to kind of just friend loads of people and build a big audience. And the futility of that and the way that that killed the conversation about the music became apparent very quickly. And so at that point, I started to conceive of a use of social media that was genuinely social and that wasn't a marketing tool. And it wasn't all the things that all the kind of people writing about this great new way for musicians to to network and do this. It's like, well, no, it's, it's just about creating a story around what you do. And so I think the whole idea of storytelling came in fairly on, fairly early on. And one of the big advantages I had on the, that sort of, in that sort of mid noughties period when blogging was an incredibly important resource for, for musicians was that I'm a writer as well. I'm a journalist. I've been, I was not trained as a journalist, but my partner in, uh, from back in the nineties, she was a, she was a sub editor and a very good journalist. And so she taught me how to write mm-hmm. and she would edit what I was doing going, you can't write 150 word sentence. That's ridiculous. And, and so I became, so I developed this set of skills and I got to practice in magazines and harness that for the, this process of storytelling. So as that storytelling process fragmented away from being about long blocks of text on a blog and became about Twitter and Facebook and MySpace updates, mm-hmm. I, I got pretty good at writing in small chunks and, and, and kind of diarizing my musical life in a way that people could engage with as an unfolding story rather than as a set of marketing tools that were, were kind of cynically planned to promote a product. Digital plumber and creator of websites for famous pop stars, 
David Paris. 99 hits, Napster comes out, mm. I, you know, everything goes into a panic. Yeah. How did that affect what you did? It was it was dramatic and swift. And uh, I'll tell you my first uh, interaction with, with Napster. It's interesting. But uh, I was uh, 24, 25, and I was dating someone who was, you know, in the midst of college. And I walked in her dorm room once, and she was really busy on her laptop. And, and I, I looked at her and said, well, what are you doing? It's like, um, I'm playing with this thing. It's called Napster. And I was like, what's Napster? And she said to me, oh, it's great. You type in a song, and you hit submit, and you can, you can download it. You know, mind you, there was no streaming or anything at this time, so I know this sounds primitive, but you could download it. So, well, how do you pay for it? She said, no, you don't pay for it. You just download it. And I immediately got on the phone and called my boss. I was like, have you heard of this thing called Napster? Oh, my God. And she was like, yeah, everyone in the dorm is using it. Because in the colleges, obviously, it was one of the few places you had high-speed bandwidth. Sure, sure. Um, even I think uh, the, the bandwidth at the college was better than what was in the office. Right. If I remember right. So, yeah, I was just blown away. Like, oh, wait, this MP3 thing. You know, and I think this is uh, – around the time of the Rio player and all this. So MP3 was still kind of in its infancy. But just this idea that kids were making playlists with music that they didn't buy from iTunes. And, you know, it was, it was, it was wild. So the, the, the next thing that came along, of course, the, the record label was, oh, my God, you know, they, there was some MP3 trading, of course, on the web. Yep. You know, click here to download the MP3. And we would have to call our friends at the RIAA and shut that down and this and that. Um, it was a whack-a-mole. It was, you know, cat and mouse. But this changed the game because it was decentralized, of course, as everyone knows. There was nothing to shut down. So the label and everybody else, yeah, went into a panic. And it was, it was crazy, crazy times. Audio networker Matthew Horn. So it was an operational. I was, I think I was VP of digital operations. I think it was, some, it was that point. I've got some you know ridiculous title that they give out. Yeah. But it was digital business was the comp, was the group at, at there, and it was in conflict. To be honest with you, with the physical distribution guys who were, you know, kind of the mobsters you'd expect them to be. I mean, it was kind of it was a very rough and tumble place where you you know, it was about how many sh units of vinyl you shipped, right? That was the point. And right. the way we measured our business was very different than we did digitally. So as that world is falling off and dying, I'm in the fast moving shiny group. Uh, and my suggestions are not really, um, cause I'm fairly senior at that time. They're, they're listening. I get to go to the meetings and then, but I make suggestions they don't like to hear. <laughs> like we should digitize the whole catalog and put it on Napster because it's like radio. And like, you know, that was a, and I got not invited back to certain meetings after that. But, right. Cause yeah. I, I see this yeah. again, being somewhat countercultural within that uh, corporate environment. Well, it was, it was harder with Sony than it was. I mean, it was nice cause we were building something fast and there was a lot of money happening quickly. Um, and, and it, once we'd built the team out, and it was about 45, 50 people who did the operational thing, but it was working with small partners, right? You know, we worked early on with Last FM, where I ended up going later. Um, we work with Spotify. We work with Vodafone. We were working with all these new companies who, and to try to figure out how we were going to make, get music to their customers, right? Mm -hmm. And our customers. But we were still treating it like a distribution method, right? We were like, we were going to ship units to them and they were going to sell them to customers. We were not actually doing, uh, direct to consumer sales, which is what I asked to before I left Sony. I was, I was in charge of direct to consumer at Sony where we built out a, a way for Beyonce to sell you stuff directly and Bruce Springsteen to sell t-shirts and Christina Aguilera to sell perfume, which we did. Right. You know, so there was always a, a bit of a new thing. And, but at some point after eight years at Sony, it's like, I can't do this anymore. There's a little red dot in front of my desk. I'm like, what is that? Oh, it's where I've been banging my head for the last 
eight years, right? When it's not going fast enough, this is not fun anymore. UK Music Publishers Association General Manager, Lucy Caswell. I guess my question, like I've got a thousand questions, but they would boil down to, is copyright fit for purpose? Copyright or copyright law? Good question. Copyright law is what I'm talking about. So is current copyright law fit for purpose? Do we need to amend it or do we need to throw it away and start again from this first principles? This is exactly the conversation that we're having now, but it's more than that. It's also, as I say, the law is much lower than creativity. So there comes a point where you have such a change in consumption in the way that um, the market works, it would be weird not to update your law um, in alignment with that. So this process has to happen. It always happens in markets over different generations and different evolutions. doesn't mean it's an easy conversation sure. because you have to understand the push and pull that you describe. But everybody is living in the same ecosystem. So we'd like to think we can find a solution. But that solution has to make it sustainable to keep producing that music. Right. I've had a lot of conversations in the past with sort of copyright reformists, and I was yeah. kind of consider myself one uh, to a large extent. But th- there is a real debate, I think, to be had about whether the thing to do is to update copyright or to start again and go, right, what are we trying to achieve with this? What are the first principles? And what can we achieve if we write the rules again from the beginning? And it does seem to me very much that legislators, because of, you know, whether it's about, you know, uh, lawyers trying to keep their their income ticking over or, or, you know, whatever the the agenda might be, but it very much seems like every time we have these conversations, we end up just going, no, we can just make a tweak, we can make another tweak, we can make another... And and it seems like, you know, we're just sort of adding features to something that actually really isn't doing the job that everybody would really like it to do. Well, maybe that's why the conversation that's only about Europe has happened for over two years, because it's more than a tweak. But it also is because it is a conversation that includes so many people, and music is just one part of that. Um, And that, thankfully, has taken time. And I say thankfully, because otherwise it would be a tweak or, or just a single action. But we do also have to remember, in the same way as we have to remember this business isn't in one city, we have to remember that this is, is a global conversation. Innovation leader and lean and process manager for Lufthansa, Marlies Andres. Um, I have a very uh, strange background, so to say, but it's a background that may mirror many realities for Venezuelans. Uh, both of my parents are from different nationalities. My mom is from Costa Rica, my dad is from Germany, born in Venezuela, but from German parents. Uh-huh. And I was born in Venezuela. So when I was growing up, I was... Uh, basically a um, culture mixture, so to say. Mm. And that uh, gave me from a very early age a uh, different perspective on how things were in theory supposed to be done and how they were actually happened because I was taught at home certain things, for example, punctuality. And if you say your word, you have to keep it. And mm. in a culture where punctuality is being two hours after the time you agreed <laughs> or <laughs> agreements is more like um, something informal instead of something formal. So basically it was already a clash of, of values that made me understand that one of them is not necessarily right and the other one is wrong. It's basically if you mix both of them, you can do something very interesting out of it. And that has a lot of similarities with innovation, so to say, because it's about um, cutting with the strict rules of this has to be done this way. You actually break those barriers and try to see the, the blank spaces, like we said in the 
in, in the innovation course that we just had is try to see in between the gaps that you have and how those different types of knowledge mix each other. And for me, it was a huge um, uh, cultural crash when I came to Germany, which stereotypically is uh, known as a very innovative country with a lot of new ideas. And instead, what I found is not that it's not there, but it's in a very controlled environment and very conservative environment instead of uh, flexibility that I was used to. It's where a rule in Latin America can be more interpreted instead right. of followed. Here, rules are to be followed. And these rules, of course, also mean that uh, you probably are going to be able to see things only through the eyes of this rule instead of challenging the rule. And with this, I'm not saying to go against the rule, but... It's basically understand what the rule is trying to accomplish and understand, can you do the same that you want to do with the rule in other ways? Swedish innovation agency and funding body Vinova's head of strategic design, Dan Hill. Streets are now run by traffic engineers, pretty much. And I have this diagram. If you put traffic engineer into the street, traffic is what comes out. Like the clue's in the name. And you can get more or less of it, but basically that's what it produces. If you let gardeners govern the street, you get gardens. So we don't, we let traffic engineers do it. So I'm just sort of saying, okay, how many different perspectives can we get into this complex thing called the street? And let's Mm -hmm. see it as a complex thing, but in a beautiful everyday kind of way. Right. And then we can see that as a real powerful multiplier of all kinds of diverse activities, music, festivals, (laughs) uh, businesses, you know, life in general, greenery, Everything. And traffic is one of the things that happens there, for sure. Right. But it's not the point. What you're saying is rather than divide a large city up into its functions, you divide a small amount of city up. As uh, a powerful generator of possible things. You know, and then imagine if you had that. Again, imagine if you sort of had like a department of gardening running the streets, you'd have a very different kind of city coming out of that. So I'm not suggesting that, but I'm suggesting that is one of the... It does sound like a nice idea. It's not bad. (laughs) But uh, funnily, this is not to name drop, but this is where I had a chat with Brian Eno about this because I was part of a... um, commission in the UK working for the government on the industrial strategy and one reason or another too long to go into Brian and I ended up in the commission and it was fantastic having him in the room as you might imagine because the bunch of the rest of us are so-called experts in our areas me now is like an urban urbanist sort of expert and I was responsible for coming up with some uh, challenges to the government around mobility and one of the things I was talking about was streets and so on I was kind of heading that way but I was also, I realized in retrospect, playing it safe a bit because I knew the Department of Transport and others were on the end of this. So I can't walk in there talking about gardens straight away. They literally would laugh me out of the room. I was heading that way, (laughs) but meandering that way. Brian instantly just sort of subverted the whole thing beautifully at one point in this afternoon in this boring committee room in UCL in London. And he said, this is all great, but what if we could imagine a city where people just slowed down a lot more and things moved a little less? (laughs) (laughs) And it was just... AI ethics philosopher, Professor Charles S. The arguments I've heard for autonomous vehicles have been very strongly in the direction of utilitarian ones, that if we dramatically reduce accident rates, then what's the problem? Uh... And uh, prima facie, yeah, sounds great. The problem, there are several problems that line up. One of them is um, it, it turns out that autonomous vehicles uh, 
can and probably ought to be programmed in such a way that if the choice is between saving the driver or five people, it'll save the five people. Now, are you as a driver going to go buy a car that you know might literally kill you if it thinks that's the best decision? Not many of us are going to step into that kind of context, mm-hmm. I don't think. So there's, there's, and there's also a question of rights uh, that are raised by that. So um, I suspect that in the U.S., you're, I'm rather confident that in the U.S., if you could produce those kinds of vehicles, then you might have a stronger chance at making that kind of utilitarian argument. The flip side is that they've found in some studies that people really don't want to give up driving, especially in the U.S. For many people, it's their flow experience. Uh, It's one of the places they have control over their lives. And so there's other things going on in there besides just running a vehicle down the road. Mm. And I I also wonder, uh, there's a really, I think a really fine movie called iRobot with Will Smith. And there's a scene in there that literally gets to the heart of this where the Will Smith character is in a car accident. The other vehicle has a driver and a 13-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. A robot sees this, and the robots are programmed to save human lives. And so the robot calculates that Will Smith has a 45% chance of survival, and the 13-year-old girl has an 11% chance of survival. Simple. And what Will Smith says after this is all over is, she was somebody's baby. Mm. 11% was enough. Anybody with a heart would have known that, approximately. Yeah. Um, they're just difference engines. They're just lights and clocks. And that's a little bit harsh, but what I find uh, obviously moving in that is this sense that we know something in our ethical judgment that has to do with relationship that we'll take chances that machines wouldn't. Mm. And you could maybe reprogram the machine and say, let's save little girls rather than old men. Okay, fine. And I'm not, still not, I'm still a little skeptical. Mm. Yeah. NYU music tech professor and president of AES, the Audio Engineering Society, Agnieszka Roginska. You know, my philosophy is that um, technology and art go hand in hand. And uh, one has to drive the other and vice versa. I think because the technology is evolving, it is giving new ideas and new forms of expression and creativity to artists. And artists are taking these technologies and running away with it and doing things that they norm- they wouldn't be able to do before. But vice versa, because now art- artists are creating new ways of making things, technology is catching up. So it's this constant evolution moving forward. Technology goes forward, art- uh, creativity goes forward, and so on and so on. And so I think that we, we are doing different things that we were not able to do before. Uh, and, you know, even thinking about just now the specific situation that we're faced in, where people don't get together as much as they used to, right? So now we have to be able to make music together across distances. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to, uh, like at NYU and in, in our department, all the ensembles, you know, orchestras, uh, jazz ensembles, percussion ensembles, everything had to be taken um, online. So now we have to be creative of how do we create music together to make it sound good and perhaps create new forms of music that not just um, allow us to do the things that we've been able to do before, but let's think of new ways of making music. Let's, let's use this. Let's use this in a way that we wouldn't be able to use this before. The fact that we 
we cannot get together anymore, which means that we can get together in a remote setting with people that we normally would never get together before and make, make, make music before. So now the geographical boundaries are gone. Digital media lawyer and music tech business advisor, Cliff Fluet. One of the core differentiators about law is it is not a law of nature, it is not a law of science, and it's not a law of God. I, it's made up by men as they go along. And I still get to meet lots and lots of people in their lives who just say, well, the law says this. The law doesn't say anything. The law is applied and construed and interpreted. It doesn't say anything. Um, and that actually, in many ways, you can bend it to your will. So that very much has a lot of how I did um, the rest of my career, which is essentially understanding that the law does not stand still and it has to catch up, particularly when it comes to music technology. So um, 30 years ago, I'm starting my university. I've never been out of London very much. I'm a couple of years in. Um, I didn't have lawyers in my family. I didn't get to do work experience at places or anything like that with family, friends. And outside my lecture hall, I had a conversation with three other lawyers, uh, law students. We were not lawyers. We were anything but lawyers. Where somebody told me that there were these lawyers who in their offices had fridges with beer in it and they were lawyers at record companies i was like why does a record company need a lawyer like, well you know artist contracts and stuff flash forward to 25 years ago i've now qualified to be a lawyer i have decided that i become a real estate lawyer of all things i'm going to a property lawyer and i'm going to do that's what i'm going to do for the rest of my life and i picked up a my roommate's copy of the times at 3 a.m stuck on a boring transaction and I saw an ad for a job at a record company and I thought huh I wonder if they've got those fridges MTF's founder and the chair of the Industry Commons Foundation Michaela Magus you have seen examples where the data from music because data from music is widely available it's highly complex it comes with all of these different challenges that are really well known. And then when we use it in test environments, we can actually use it in test environments that are to do with something completely different, like finance. Sure. But if you used finance data, well, you couldn't access it because GDPR, and then you couldn't, uh, then it would be, if you if you did access it, it would be without certain elements because of GDPR. Or sure, people's financial and, data, people's medical data. And then it data, would be expensive, you know, yeah, or rather exactly. it would be a problem for the bank to, to kind of be releasing things like that. There would be all kinds of legal issues and whatever. Instead, we just take music data, which has very similar characteristics. Uh-huh. Um, it also has kind of proportion, uh, you know, maybe particular variables on there that are comparable right. to the case study that we are examining in the other domain. And therefore, uh, is entirely replaceable. Is this why the creative sector is so important in the midst of this, or is this just one kind of element of, of what makes uh, uh, music industries, creative industries more broadly sort of central to this? Because it's become central to this. And I really want to talk about that's kind of been the payoff of you going to Brussels and working with the European Commission is that now the creative industries are a central pillar to all of the ways that these industries are, are thought about. Is that a large part of it? It's because nobody dies if you mess up their metadata on an MP3. <laughs> The, uh, I don't think that um, uh, the creative industries have become this important just because their data is easy to use. Um, I think that um, the, the creative industries have uh, really grown in importance because essentially what we're facing at the moment are so many 
unknown unknowns um, that creative practitioners are the ones who are trained to investigate unknown scenarios and they have methodologies to tackle these um, new surprising scenarios. Let's face it, every single time that we run our labs that involve AI neural nets and any kind of um, system that's complex uh, where uh, the human being is interacting in an entirely new way. Blockchain, get, neuroscience, uh, yeah, robotics. This combination you know. of sort of new sort of things. Because the prototypes that we now build, they their effects are so fast, the results come up so fast, the amount of different surprises that come out of these new scenarios, they really are overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And no linear problem-solving system, no prior training can prepare you for those unless you are a creative practitioner who has been by default trained to do problem-solving by looking at things from completely different perspectives. Enterprise Development Manager Jenny Oliver. I think that the creative industries is in every other industry. Every other successful industry is engaging with the creative industries. Um, But what I would say is it's less about what these other industries are doing. Um, I fundamentally believe is that for the creative industries, it's content. Um, Distributors, platforms, they are looking, you know, they're slightly different. I'm always interested in who's generating intellectual property and where are they taking that intellectual property? What intellectual property assets do they have? How can we get that keeping going? And it's about keeping those stories moving, mm-hmm. keeping those stories engaging and evolving and relevant. That's where the creative industry sits for me. We can wrap it up in all sorts of other industries' uh, names. We can wrap it up in all sort of different definitions, but fundamentally, I think that what sits at the core of all of this and has for thousands of years is stories. Mm-hmm. Um, stories influence the direction of travel for um, human nature, our economies, our politics, everything. Because that was going to be stories. my next question, why, why are stories important? But you, you think it's because stories drive everything else? Is it stories how we're wired? drive decision-making. They, they, you know, when you find a story that you engage with, when you find a story that resonates with your value sets as an individual, mm-hmm. then you will migrate in that direction. Um, sometimes where your value sets um, are almost aligned, sometimes you can see a little bit of a nudge coming through on that, and you, can, you, you see people in, evolving in their own value sets and their own thinking. And that's very clever creative industry strategies if somebody's deliberately trying to do that. Um, but I do believe it, that you know, stories at the core, and we can call it anything we want going forward, anything we have in the past, fundamentally, people are telling stories. Session CEO, Nicholas Molinder. I started when I was young. Uh, school was nothing for me. And I h- hated school, to uh-huh. be honest. And I didn't fit in. Uh, so... Uh, and the funny thing with music, I cannot find anyone except from my granddad that in my family that was you know played any instrument. So not a musical family. No, not a musical family. Right. So uh, 
Yeah, the funny thing is that the music, my parents, you know, they listened to, to ABBA when I was young. And now it's funny that I'm partnered with Björn Olveir, so, yeah, which is be, pretty cool. They must be very impressed. Yeah, they yeah. are actually. Yeah. Uh, no, but, you know, I, uh, so, but music were always, I was, you know, loved music. And actually my mom, she, she has a picture of, of me uh, when I was three years old next to my granddad because he was playing the accordion. Okay. And I, I'm sitting there on that picture on, uh, and he's playing the accordion and I have a tambourine in my hand. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people around like the family was standing. And mom or you, sometimes tell me about this picture. Like everyone was so impressed how I as a three-year-old could actually play in tempo uh-huh. as a three-year-old. So you maybe that's where when my music interest was born. I have no idea, but I... I podcaster and science journalist Ariel Dumros. When I was a climate change correspondent on, on, on TV, I, I knew that I was not necessarily going to be the person to change someone's mind about anything. You know, mm-hmm. when you watch a documentary TV segment about climate change, you're going to take away what you want from it. Sure. And if you're already convinced, you're going to say, okay, this is further evidence that supports the, my view of the world. And if you are not convinced, you will somehow find a way to, um, to, to take a skeptical view of it or go, oh, but, you know, to, to nitpick. Um, and so what I have learned over the years and also what one of our recent guests talked about, Liz Neely, who's a science communication expert for a, a nonprofit called The Story Collider, is that a lot of the way that people change their minds is through the people that they have surrounding them, right? That what you hear in the media and what you read on the news, if you're you know, an avid Fox News listener, that's one thing. But you then also turn, to, you also really care about the people around you and what they think. Mm-hmm. And so if you have somebody in your life that is skeptical of climate change or that believes that 5G cell phone towers are somehow inducing the symptoms of coronavirus as opposed to an actual virus, um, you can play a role in sort of guiding them away from that that thought process and sort of and the way to do that is not just saying you're wrong and hear all the articles that prove that you are wrong because that that won't work. The way to do that is to have a conversation with those people and to take them seriously and to be empathetic and to say, okay, explain to me why you feel the way that you do. And really listen, really listen to the entire thing, all of the arguments, which might be hard. And then at the end of that, you can sort of, what you will most likely hear is fear. What you will most likely hear is a problem with uncertainty and that is those are the threads that you can you can sort of take and use and say you know what i understand why you're scared i understand this is scary and don't repeat information that is incorrect don't don't repeat the 5g but coronavirus thing but you can say here's what these experts that most people trust are saying and that's not always going to work but if you are somebody that that person trusts, it might. And so I think that we all sort of have a little bit of a responsibility within reason to talk to individuals in our lives who may have views that are sort of leaning towards conspiracy theories. Um, that said, I will say that um, that those kinds of conversations can be taxing. And I believe that they are really only worth it under specific circumstances, circumstances where somebody might, for instance, be harming themselves or harming others. Um, 
And so you got to pick and choose your battles, basically, because it's self-preservation. You have to take care of yourself as well. Beatboxer, researcher, and AI vocal expert Harry Yiff, aka Reaps One. I ended up doing quite well in school, basically because I hope she doesn't listen to this. I don't think I've recorded this story because of my girlfriend at the time. Uh-huh. Um, I was deeply in love and uh, in in a puppy like way, and uh, she was she was like top two percent in the country, like super bright girl. And basically, her mum sat me down and was like, "If you don't do well in your GCSEs, like you're probably not going to be able to stay with Steph." So I found myself I was winning chess tournaments at the time which was great but when it came to these things that normally I just be like oh I, can't, I just can't get my teeth into I sat I remember sitting down like in uh like in in my space at home I was like okay Harry you need to absorb this information and I remember spending 24 hours like looking at my uh, geography um textbook and I was I like I was on the edge of crying because I just could not absorb it because I wasn't in my heart heart of hearts interested and what's happening there and this is a proven idea is people that uh have this type of process there is um a chain of intention and even if your conscious mind is saying okay harry mum and dad said this is important xx reason this is important there is almost like a physical pain there's a there's a physical block that can happen and you can't control that like nobody wants to do things that they find boring, mm. but people that have this type of process, there is almost like a pain uh, that you could associate with it when, and, and, and a sort of a disharmony, which is extremely dysfunctional. Um, and in adult life, I've, re- I've totally like mastered my ability to overcome that. But as, as a young person, you can, you can get hit with a lot of, Oh, just get on with it. Like, I'll oh, mm. stop being, stop being stubborn or like stop. Um, yeah. Stop, uh, stop being an idiot. Uh, but the, there are other things at bay and um, that's one reason I really love to talk about my story and how I overcame some of those internal blocks. There's so. another thread to that story though, which is that you're a massive romantic. Like it was so important to you to be to, <laughs> to, to be who she wanted you to be. No, I desperate, man, I, God, I really like, you know, when you're a teenager, that's something else at that point. And I desperately wanted to like just nail it. Um and eventually it did it did kind of work out um i did well but uh yeah that was a it was just a perfect example for the point i'm trying to make is that uh, when you have that type of mental process even if every fiber in your conscious mind is desires to absorb it mm. there is something else going on which can just put up a wall artist of science marta de menezes and all you need to do then is to add to it a guide or a template and that template will tell the, the DNA of the cell how to repair that piece that was cut off. And this is why CRISPR is so effective at uh, uh, altering the genetically um, the cells. Um, and, and, and this is why it's so revolutionary as well, because you can, uh, you can change cells without changing the whole er- organism. Right. I have two questions about that. Okay. The, the, and, and maybe, I don't know which is uh, easier to address, but um, one is what are the affordances of that? What does that allow to happen? And, and the second part of that is what are the ethics of this? How does that play out? It's, it's, it's very different. So the technology itself is very promising and it's evolving tremendously. So mm-hmm. now there's a, 
a lot of technologies which are based on this one, which are probably an, adv an advancement on this. When this was found, it was tested and it was used wildly. Uh, but this means that also it got improved wildly and it's still improving. Okay, But there are two, um, there are two main paths for it. One is this thing that it can alter parts of a body without altering the whole body. And this is interesting because the ethical issues around this are a lot less complicated than if you alter the whole body because altering the whole body means altering the germline. And so that organism will send, will propagate this into the offspring that it gets and it's a whole line of manipulated organisms. Uh -huh. um, so you have two main lines which have very different ethical issues. The one that seems to be more promising in terms of disease um, is the one where you can alter um, only cells. And, and, and because you can alter only cells, you can, you can aim it at specific cells. Like It can be about disease, but it can also be about changing your eye color for instance. So mm. this is just an example. Sure. I don't know of any lab who's trying to do this. And uh, so the, the issue with this technology is that you could, in principle, change your eye color by uh, administrating the molecule, the guide RNA, and the template into your iris. Yes? Wow. Musician, Mark DeClive Lowe. Touring has gone, and it's not coming back. Right. Ever. And... I don't know if I believe that, but I behaved like that. And I think that was good. So, you know, once I had a clear head, I just, you know, got out my notebook, you know, listed down every potential revenue stream I feel like I could, I could, I could get, whether I wanted to or not. Just like, we're still within the greater kind of parameters of, of music. Right. Just so I could at least have a visual. And I kind of fleshed them out a little bit. And I had essentially an action plan. I didn't know it was an action plan, but essentially an action plan. And I, was, I, I remember thinking, like, you know, I'd say to friends what I was doing. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm acting as if, well, I, I'd say, I, I would say Turing Nippling back, and they'd be in shock. And I'd always say, well, if it comes back, when, if, however it comes back, if I can improve these other things, I'll be in a stronger position to <laughs> be more sustainable. <laughs> and it was just really interesting because there were, I mean, there were all manner of things on this list. But, for example, one of them you know, I've been thinking about doing a Patreon for years mm -hmm. and I never did it. And I didn't do it because I thought, well, I'm always on the road. I don't want to commit to deliverables on a monthly schedule. Sure. You know, it's, just, I've had, it's the same reason, you know, I've had radio show opportunities. I've said no, because they want a weekly show. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't know where I'll be. So suddenly I'm like, okay, well, there's no more touring. I'm in one place. Let me start a Patreon. And then I was, I've been working with an online festival, La Saber Fest. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the, the opportunity to basically get my rig together for live streaming and force me to have to learn that really quickly, which was great. It's like, you know, it's, it started to feel like, okay, there's real possibilities here. And once I, I set up my, my rig and tweaked it a bit, but, but essentially my live rig, which I never set up at home, I set that up at home. And I, once it was all set up, I realized like, wow, I'm not going to break this down for a long time. Yeah. And the more time goes by, I'm like, I don't want to break this down for a long time. <laughs> sure. So it's, it's been a relief. Artist and glovist, Chris Halpin. I often find when I'm performing, I, could, like, 
I, you know, like I say, I went to art college. This is art with a capital A. At the risk of, you know, I'll die on that hill, man. I might be a bit pretentious for some people, but this, you know, this, I'm trying my best here. This is meant to be, you know, the real thing. And, you know, I pour so much into these performances and then people, you finish a song and then people in the UK are like, so is it Bluetooth or Wi-Fi? Author Derek Sivers. I like being a little bit famous. I don't want to be super famous. Like, I don't want to be as famous as... Tim Ferriss or Tony Robbins or maybe not even Seth Godin. Um, But I really like the little tiny bit of fame I have now because it opens doors where whenever I read a book I love, I always email the author and tell them that I loved it. And almost every time they email me back and are like open to talking with me and meeting with me because I have some kind of public profile myself. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. And then because I have a bit of a profile, um, you know, I hear from 20 to 40 strangers every day, send me an email and introduce themselves. And, you know, often it's like some guy who's, uh, I don't know, whatever, building log cabins in Finland or somebody who's an investor in Uruguay. And I just find such a, an amazing sense of both connection and security. Knowing all these people from around the world is such a nice feeling that it, if I ever get on a plane to go to Uruguay someday, I've got a list of like 55 people I know in Uruguay just because they've emailed me and introduced themselves. Like, that's an amazing feeling. So I like that my profile is just high enough that I meet a lot of cool people music producer and television composer, Doug DeAngelis. Like, I remember recording the guitars on it. We used a, a Yamaha REX50. Do you remember that box? Oh, it was sort of like an XBX90, but it was flat. It was a tabletop version of it. Oh, right. Wow. And it, it was like a very, it was like an SBX90 light, <laughs> right? And it was a tabletop version. It had, dis, it had a patch that was distortion. Yeah. That was all those guitars on Head Like a Hole. That's just straight through that box. No, there's no amps. It was just a tweaked out version of that processor making oh. those just ripping tones, you know? And... So much of it was just the way it was processed, the way it was done. I remember my favorite part of that whole session, if you know that record, in the song Terrible Lie, there's a moment where everything mutes for a second then comes back on. It Literally, it pauses. Mm -hmm. That was a mistake of trying to hit the mute button, hitting the solo button by accident. And it wrote in the automation. Right. And that weird move stayed all the way through the final version of that, and it's still in there. And that always blows my mind because, you know, that's one of those moments where it's like so much of innovation comes out of accident, you know. And, and it's my favorite song on the record. So, it's yeah, so it's, much weird <laughs> stuff comes out of accidents, you yeah. know. Fashion technologist Lisa Lang. Electronic embedded textiles are going to be super important, of course, for space travel is because you need to monitor those astronauts, what they're doing up there. But also you want to, when you digitize your garment, your garment can talk with all of the electronics around you, you know. On Earth, we call it IoT, Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Up in space, it's like kind of like, you know, helps you to survive. Uh, good argument. So, again, it's like space is like so exciting and so inspiring. And it makes us focus because we have to deal with very little resources and we have to be very innovative. And also we are forced to think from a complete different way. And if we think in that context, we actually can find solution to help us on Earth. Mm. So 
little examples. Like one of those issues is like when you wear any kind of the normal kind of fabrics we know in space, they give up fiber and that fiber clogs up the air ventilation, which is kind of like a disadvantage if you want to breathe in space. So like the astronauts actually have to, they have like vacuum cleaner duties where they have to, to clean up air ventilation also because like their skin's in their hair and something is flying around. Anyway, so this is one thing. So like, of course, on one side, like you want to have a garment which doesn't give up fiber. On Earth, we have the microfiber issue. Same issue, same solution. Uh, the astronauts have to train their muscles every day. Otherwise, they will lose their muscle power. They sweat, but they can't change their clothes because the suitcase is not big enough. So they have to wear garments over and over again, which, of course, not comfortable because there's not no space for a washing machine kind of like essential. So like one of those things is like, well, how about we can make a full cradle, like cradle to cradle? Like for instance, you somehow generate your garment in the morning if it's like, I don't think 3D printing is the solution because everybody who is excited about 3D printing has never worked with 3D printing because you know, like how a pain it is. But like, uh, you know, I like spray, spray technology a little bit better. So, okay. So imagine you wake up in the morning and a, a fabulous garment gets like, you know, knitted, sprayed whatsoever on you. You wear it. When you wear it, what do you like? You move, you sweat. What is in your sweat? Minerals. So you wear it, you move it. And in the end of the day, you actually nurture your textiles with so much water and minerals that you can actually use it as a fertilizer for your garden on Mars. NASA scientist Ben Feist. This is the raw material that was used to make the Apollo 11 film that was in theaters last year. Um, Stephen and I were involved in that, and this this restoration of this audio was my contribution to the film, uh, part of it anyway. And Stephen then took it, and his job was archive producer, so he was grabbing all the archive. And then once he realized that you could synchronize in this way, the way you just described, now that we had a wayfinding mechanism to say, I think that's the flight dynamics officer, and it looks like this footage was shot just after launch – um, and you see his lips moving, Stephen would then go look for action on the flight dynamics loop. And it took him um, a long time. I think it took him uh, about 18 months to add sound to the silent footage that had not had any sound to it before. Mm. And we even got moments like Gene Krantz saying, Capcom, we're go for landing. Uh, now synced with audio. You know, nobody, no one's ever seen and heard Gene Krantz say that before. And we were, just, we were ecstatic that, that we got this kind of material. And Stephen delivered all that to the filmmaker, Todd Miller. He then edited it through it and made a film out of it, um, leaving a huge amount of it on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Vocal sculptor and sound artist, Jason Singh. I mean, I have been creating music since I was two, you know, I, and that started off with rhythms. It started off with drums. And I never had the, I never had the inclination or desire to be an artist. I never wanted to be a musician, never wanted to be like, Oh, we're going to go, you know, make records or whatever. No interest in that. My only burning desire and to the point of absolute obsessiveness was to make beats and make rhythms, you know? Um, and as a child, before I you could communicate that my mom said to me like you know she goes she bought me a drum when I was two years old and she goes you just started playing rhythms and she goes and I knew then like this you've got music in you and I come from you know music people so it's in our family and then growing up I've just like obsessed over beats it's completely obsessed over beats and just for the thing of hearing rhythms hearing grooves and, and stuff um and when it became a thing, I'd say is when I came to Manchester in 93, I was 19. 
um, and I started DJing. Um, I grew up with sound systems, but it was only, I was just, that was part of our upbringing. So, you know, all our friends, our sound systems, you help out and, you know, being exposed to all of that music. And that was just part and parcel of it. it was, there was no kind of desire to be something, something. Um, and then came to Manchester when I was 19. And then that's when, you know, it was like, oh, I'd go to university. And that didn't work out because I was still DJing. <laughs> or I, I did a job, something, something else. I was a van driver for a, a, a year or so. I was still making music. And then just slowly it was kind of like more than opportunities started coming. And I was, you know, teaching DJing skills and I was doing music production. And then I was doing, but then also beatboxing. And I had a band and I was running club nights. And like, it was just stuff. It was just all there was no, there's never been a plan. Do you know what I mean? It's never been like, I am going to do this or this is my five year. Like, you know, I've never done, I've never done that. Um, and it's weird because in terms of the time we're in now, I've had these kind of reconfigurations that have happened after certain periods of time. You know, a community of people know me as an artist that does this. Somebody else has known me for that. Then I did something, another project, which then changed my course of stuff. So like the whole thing has just always been some kind of like, strange journey of like this this and that and i just i run with the passion of whatever i'm feeling at the time so hmm. um yeah there's never it was never a plan ai and robotics professor danica kragic yeah i'm very much against building robots uh, that uh, look like humans uh, or uh, are direct replicas of humans uh, we have that we have that in japan we also have now that in uk or uh, hanson robotics and uh, sophia and so on uh, why am i against that well at least for some time until we have robots having uh, all the abilities of humans or even more or better abilities uh, than humans because if you are an untrained user, and by untrained, I mean somebody that is maybe not uh, in the technical area, somebody that is potentially scared from the beginning. Anything that looks like human, you have human expectations on. And we know how it is for us humans when we meet a human, another human, that maybe doesn't speak our language, that comes from a different culture, that doesn't have the same values and things like that. We become reserved. So it's also between us. It's not only between us and technical systems. So I would like to avoid uh, fuzzing people, if I can say like that, especially now in the beginning, but the technology is still very, very young. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is we can't completely disregard a uh, human body or uh, be inspired by human body. And that has a little bit to do with the environment around us. So everything that we see around us has been adapted to our bodies. The ability that we can sit makes the chairs of certain size and of certain shape. The ability that we drink or use mic or a pen. If we didn't have any fingers or we, we just had just one, the world around us would probably look completely different. Jazz pianist, Grammy-winning TV composer and educator, Dee Dee Jackson. I mean, I was always flirting with a fascination with technology. If anything, I really had to avoid dealing with it too soon because I knew I would just never become a jazz musician at the time because I knew I was just such a tech person and, and so into that. I was into, you know, earlier analog keyboards, which uh, ironically uh, to me, or humorously maybe to me, have become like cool retro things now. That studio where um, I was doing some work with The Roots, that kind of retro studio that was kind of 
uh, modeled after, as I was saying, like 8-track tape machine, all the 60s kind of technology. I think there was a Juno 106 there, and that was like one of my first synthesizers. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this was like in my father's place under my bed back back at home now yeah but now it's considered cool even like the m1 and all those things and not just cool but expensive and expensive yeah and desirable so uh, so i did you know i was into it early on but then i really became very serious about uh, first classical piano then jazz uh and again when technology became accessible and right around the time i met you a couple of years before uh i just dived in whole cloth and um, started to really uh, get get into that world uh, very much, and uh, have really never stopped. Because you were on the internet more than most of your peers. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I still remember the old, not to completely date myself, but the old Rec Music Blue Note uh, news group. You yeah, know? yeah, and Newsnet. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I used to, uh, in fact, not too long ago, I was curious, and I was like, yeah, I was definitely posting when uh, the the dawn of the internet. Uh, yet another parallel with this sort of. Uh, desire for people to go back uh, and be nostalgic for what was you know happening back then. My my son, who's twelve now, um, is all over uh, Reddit, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that's basically Usenet all over again. And he's do and he's trying to explain. Well, you know, you can go and post things to discussion groups, and people will you know respond to you. And I think that's kind of old school. Yeah, BBS forum. We've we've done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So uh, not to mention, of course, uh, uh, somewhat tangentially related, like. There's the show Stranger Things, you know, on Netflix, which is all about 80s culture. So now my son is totally into 80s music. So he's basically listening to the same music that I was listening to when I was his age and introducing some of it. Like, hey, man, dad, you should check out Sting. And I'm like, okay, I'm kind of already familiar with the dude and and all of that. So, yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating how things come around. Former CEO of Native Instruments, Daniel Haver. Is that your big advice that you give is, is, uh, for people is, is do the thing that, is, you know, that really drives you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a cliche. Listen to your heart. Yeah. Um, obviously, you need to have a certain, I think you need a certain fire that really burns in, in you. Mm-hmm. But if you feel that, follow it. Right. I know a lot of people that just never felt the fire. <laughs> and then my advice is, 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 is not great because it doesn't work for them because uh-huh. they just don't have this thing that they are so passionate about. Is it that you are passionate about this one thing that you do or is it that you have a fire to do something in the world and this happens to be what it is? It's a bit of both. I think in general I'm a rather passionate person. Uh, I really want to do something in this life because I believe I have just this and there's nothing after it. I'm absolutely certain about that part. Uh, But at the same time, I was also always lucky to then find things that I'm just in love with Mm -hmm. uh, that get me fired up and Native Instruments was such a thing. You know, I don't want to, don't know if you want to jump there. I'm just saying when I, when I see something that I get, that gets this fire burning up, then, yeah, and then I'm all up for it, and then I can do it. The South Bank Centre's senior contemporary music programmer, Bengi Unsal. My father, we had vinyls at home. We had a uh, record player. Um, I was um, I was born in uh, Ankara, but I was brought up in Istanbul, in Turkey. So I remember listening to his record collection from Pink Floyd to Cat Stevens to... Ruhisu, it's like a huge folk artist in Turkey, and just like jumping up and down over the seats, playing games with my sister. And that's probably where my love comes from. But then again, I can't say that I learned everything about music from my dad, not at all. But I, 
I don't know, I was just like so, I just loved listening to music or whenever I can, but I didn't have as much um, growing up. The first cassette I bought was probably when I was 13, 14 years old because we didn't have that accessibility to, to that music. It wasn't easy. So I was just asking my father, could you please get me a cassette? And he would just go and get it. And it's Duran Duran Arena, for instance, but I didn't specifically ask for it. I remember asking for Rick Springfield, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a cousin, it's it's a, it's someone that you admire who is older than you, listening to a piece of music, and you go like, yeah, I want to be like them, and you start listening to music. I think that's how I started, and then my knowledge probably came through. We had satellite TV, and we had Sky. Uh, there was this guy; his name escapes me now. He had this two-hour radio show-like TV program mm -hmm. with a background and like a very static background. And you used to listen to his, we used to listen to his voice and he would just like put on videos as well. And then, and then MTV we had through the satellite. So I listened to a lot of mainstream pop music mm -hmm. growing up. Oscar-winning visual effects artist, Ian Hunter. Getting an Oscar to me is, is, Richard Branson's definition of luck, which is Branson was asked, you know, did, did you feel lucky being a billionaire or whatever, whatever he's worth these days? And, uh, and he said, well, luck to him was when uh, perseverance meets opportunity. Uh -huh. So I've been in this business for a long time. Uh, I've always strived to do a good job. You know, I don't want to cheat people on what they're, what I'm providing them. Uh, I'm an audience member, so I want to look at my work as an audience member and, and do a good job, mm -hmm. be impressed by it. So I've been very fortunate over the years to work with some good directors and great directors and Christopher Nolan's one of them. And by maintaining that quality of work, you start to move up and you can start to get noticed for what you've done. And it culminated in uh, the work for Interstellar, yeah. uh, where we got the visual effects uh, Academy Award for that, along with the other three supervisors so that was great, but that to me that was like okay, well this is this is because we've all worked towards the same goal, which is to do good quality work, and we've maintained that quality throughout the years, and now we're being recognized for it. And then very quickly on the heels of that, I worked on uh, First Man, and First Man again was another film uh, that received the Visual Effects Academy Award, and I got one of those too. Uh, so now I've got two for doing space movies. I don't want to be typecast, but uh, both instances, uh, which which was good, was uh, we were working with uh, great directors who had visions and who could communicate those visions to their crews mm -hmm. and who had that respect. So I think it's just this convergence. Christopher Nolan's made good movies. I happen to work on some of them. Uh, Damien Chazelle's made good movies. I work on his last one. Um, it's, you know, they're... they're Brilliant movies, are, in my opinion, but you know they're brilliant movies, they're good movies, and uh, and these guys encourage good artists to do good work. The founder and chair of Musicians Without Borders, Laura Hassler. I don't think that history is linear. <laughs> you know, I, I think that that there are cycles, and you see this very often. And I mean, if you if you think that the you know there were huge movements against um, nuclear weapons, and which one, which really put a lot of pressure on, on political leaders to work towards accords. And those 
that was to some extent happening that hasn't happened in a long time. And now you see again, this, this rise of militarism and, um, and, and again, some resistance coming up, but, it, but, you know, we, we sort of lost that. I think we lost the, the, the power of activism for a number of decades. And I think it's being rediscovered. And the big question of course, always is, well, is, are we on time? That is a really good question. Is that something that you're optimistic about or is it something that, uh, that causes you to despair at night? So how do you interpret that? Both, I think. Uh, you know, I th- there's, there's a very interesting um, saying that I kind of hold on to, which is that, that hope is, is merely the decision to act. Um, I think that we're living in a, in a time in which, um, you know, we're seeing a number of, of stories playing out at the same time. Sound artist, musician, and head of R&D for disability arts organization, Drake Music, Tim Yates. My background actually as a musician is that I, I study classical music, I studied classical guitar, and uh, I got quite far, I was actually, I was doing a master's at the Royal College of Music in classical guitar, which is when I started doing this kind of stuff, um, because I got frustrated, I was also doing composition, so actually, I actually studied composition as well while I was then switched to a composition master's, because I got frustrated with the limitations of a traditional instrument, because I, you know, I, I started to experiment with materials, and found objects, and sound, and toys, and things like that, and you know, if you're playing a quarter of a million pound Stradivarius or whatever, then you can't scrape it with a piece of metal and bash it and hit it because, you know, people get upset. If you do that kind of stuff, you yeah. know, you've got a Steinway similarly, you know. Well, you can, but not you twice. Can. Right, yeah. exactly right, that's it. You, yeah. So, so, I, so, I, so I, I, I kind of, I got frustrated with the classical guitar in particular, so I put that down and decided that I, as it, it took the exact opposite route and I was going to just build instruments that I could build myself in like 10 minutes for five quid and still make incredible music with and, and, and explore that area. And from that, I've just gone on to do all sorts of, you know, other stuff, installation art and things like that. So that's where I come from in terms of making. Record producer and multi-instrumentalist Graham Massey of 808 State. Well, at that time we were into space rock and making kind of all kinds of um outer world sounds you know we've grown up in the pink floyd era we've grown up with bands like gong faust you know the early virgin records was such an important part of british music culture you know when virgin records uh the label started and their eclecticism and europe facing view uh you know a lot of german bands a lot of french bands it's an interesting mixture of music that we were exposed to through our local record shop, which was the Virgin Record Shop. Again, a very grassroots um, mail order system that started out as. Uh, it was a, a gathering place for the punk community of Manchester. They, they had three listening booths in there, you know, with the headphones. And uh, there was usually about 30 people in the three listening booths. You know, it was a... a a place uh, for exchanging ideas. Um, a, a guy who was in our band, his auntie managed that shop, so he had a Saturday job, a guy called Colin Seddon. And he used to bring home the, all this fantastic music that was coming through that shop from America, you know, first hearing, you know, bands like The Residents and uh, Devo and um, some of the... Um, more outre stuff of the punk movement. You know, we got sick of the three-chord thrash, got really boring to us really quickly. You know, it always sounded like pub rock, a lot of your traditional punk. 
But once, you, uh, like the New York thing was filtering through into Manchester, and we very much um, um, sided with that. There was bands in Manchester, like a certain ratio, for instance, that were very on par with that. You know, they were taking sort of funk and dance elements alongside electronics uh, and uh, a deliberate lack of skill. You know, people would always play the trumpet in these bands. You almost had to have somebody that couldn't play the trumpet playing the trumpet in a post in a post punk band. You know, Throbbing Gristle has it, Twenty Three Skidoo has it, Cabaret Voltaire has it. You know, and and uh, we had a trumpet amongst the two bands that shared our rehearsal room, and we used to pass it round. And you know, it was uh, these non non instrumental players playing instruments was part of that scene so long as you had enough processing and that that was a point when also about um post punk is it became a very much a studio craft principal researcher at microsoft research and pioneering internet scholar Nancy Bame. My dissertation was about a discussion forum on the internet where they were talking about soap operas. This was in the early 1990s. I believe it was the first dissertation about online community. And um, so I have a long-standing interest in audiences, and I had really avoided dealing with music for a very long time because I love it so much that I didn't want it to be work. You were just talking about, I don't want my hobby to be my work. I thought, oh no, if it becomes my work, I'm doomed. I'll never have pleasure again. Um, but I kind of found myself in a situation where it just kept coming up. And so um, it actually started with an interest in Swedish independent pop music because I had, in 2000. Five, I guess I had sort of fallen in love with all these Swedish indie pop bands and I was living in Kansas and I sort of said how is it even possible that I am sitting in Kansas and I know more about Swedish indie pop than most Swedes um, so I wrote a series of papers about uh, the fans of this music and the ways that uh, the independent labels and artists at that time here were really supporting peer-to-peer -peer formats and were really supporting mp3 blogs and really supporting the uh, circulation of their materials outside of the market um, and so I wrote a series of articles about what was going on there from the point of view of first of all what was happening and then what was the fans point of view and sort of tried to enter into that discussion of is this exploited labor or are these people really is it a labor of love that they're happy about and the answer is yes and uh, about the musicians and the labels and what their ideal was in, in supporting this kind of view. The CEO of Bandcamp, Ethan Diamond. So a lot of that was just figuring out, okay, we need to be very familiar with the, pro I, I wanted to be very familiar with the process of making vinyl and, and coming up with, you know, the packaging and, you know, listening to test pressings, finding a good facility and all of that. Um, because it felt like this is going to be an important, you know, part of the business, but also just because that's what I grew up, you know, listening to. Yeah. Um, that's what my parents' record collection was on vinyl. And um, that's how I mostly listen to music, just because it gives me that, you know, that feeling, right? Um, I don't, it's not an audio quality thing for me personally. It's just, you know, I, for me, it's a tactile thing and also just a process thing. I like committing myself to a, to a whole record and, and, uh, and going through that yeah sure so anyway uh as like i said about half the business now is physical goods and vinyl um is the biggest part of that by far and um is also growing the fastest mm -hmm. so um 
so we've taken a lot of the things that we learned from doing those uh, couple of um, sort of early tests and um, have uh, used that to create this service that it basically allows people to press vinyl without a lot of the, well, first of all, without the risk, um, because you don't have to front, you know, $3,000. Um, the way the system works is that's, um, the, the pressing is funded by your fans who are ordering the record. Yeah. And also um, just taking away, or at least trying to make uh, a lot friendlier, the sort of domain expertise you have to have to, to press vinyl. So, you know, we've built a, an interface for letting you specify a record that tries to demystify some of that. And we've been in a pilot phase with that now for quite a while. We're trying, you know, there's a lot of tweaking to do. Um, and uh, we're, we're getting ready to roll that out really, really soon to a lot more artists. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that one. I think it's going to be fun. It's, it also, I should mention, takes away the hassle because we do all the fulfillment. Right. So, you know, when your when your record comes back, um, you, when a record gets returned because of a corner ding or th something like that, you know that's that it comes to you. Yeah. It comes to us. We handle that. We happily handle that. Right. And, and I feel like also that's just doing. <laughs> I feel like this is a good service for the world. I once in the early days ordered a record on Bandcamp. They came back to me, and it was packaged exclusively in a, a single sheet of newspaper. <laughs> like somebody had taken the, the single sheet of newspaper, wrapped up the record put postage on it and it, it made its way from, it was Norway. Wow. It made its way from Norway to, you know, San Francisco and, you know, it was completely destroyed, but it's one of my favorite records. It's this amazing record. It's by a band called Koppen, K-O, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's K-O-P-P-E-N. Okay. Yeah. Koppen sounds right. It, it's, yeah. it's so good, but the record, like the jacket is just like, you know, peeled off more or less. Anyway, yeah. um, I like the idea of, trying to get as many records as possible to people in proper packaging and you know so that so that 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 happens to fewer people music journalist author and gold blade vocalist john robb some people uh, it was a very political movement some people it wasn't for some people like a band like the ramones um put their two-thirds of that band the three-quarters of that band would be vote for donald trump if they're still alive i mean it's it wasn't quite this super right old movement that people think you know um i mean of course the clash where had a, a sort of a vague sort of a left-wing politic but the sex pistols didn't really sing political songs you know their songs are more about a personal psychodrama of john lydon which makes them utterly fascinating it's, it's it's a psychotic it's almost like a nervous breakdown when you listen to them, and in a way that could be political, it's not part of political, it's not manifesto political, but it reflects the feeling of the time. It felt, Britain felt claustrophobic. It felt like it was all going to blow up any minutes. And this is what it feels like now, oddly, you know, it's that same kind of feeling. It's a very claustrophobic place. There's no space in Britain. Yeah. Everybody's on top of everybody else and everybody's always really angry about something. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, it's like Brexit. No one cared about anything about Brexit. Five years ago, you, you say to the same people, do you want to be in or out of Europe? And we go, I don't know, I don't care. But now it's become this life-defining issue to split the country up forever. You know, in a hundred years time, the country will still be split over it. You know, it's, it's two different Britons now it's trying to squash into one island. And that's, that's but punk, punk kind of caught that feeling about an older version of it, you know, that very claustrophobic, um, pissed offness of Britain. Right. And I like the punk, but obviously, if, if I had to define myself, I would define myself more as a, a post punk person. Right. I'm part of that generation who was totally captivated by punk, tried to do their version of it, and came out completely wrong and different. That's what post punk was. We never learned to play music properly. 
the, the original punk bands, they all, they all did covers. They learned to play properly. They wrote verse, chorus, verse, chorus. They were great bands. I love that music. Mm-hmm. But the bit I'm fascinated in is the people that came afterwards could just play one riff and a bass for 10 minutes and just about trying to make a verse and a chorus and have no idea how to do it. Yeah. But somehow making that into music. And I've always been really interested in that. But to this day, I've been playing music for 40 odd years and I still can't play a cover version. The Director General of the Swedish Media Foundation... Annette Novak. So, so media and information literacy to me, it's um, it's more um, it's it's an area which has a lot of traction at the moment, but a lot of the people who are in, I would say, the debate uh, don't understand how wide it is. Um, uh, they a lot of, um, I think, teachers and librarians that I meet, they talk a lot about source criticism, which is good, but source criticism in their interpretation is very. Uh, much leaning towards the old media landscape. Uh, source criticism today uh, means that you have to understand that the certain data sources are uh, owned by big conglomerates, uh, that um, um, the data you see is been filtered in a way that you don't understand and you don't know, and it has business logics in it. Uh, one talks a lot about um, that the platform companies, they give you the user experience that you want, but you don't make informed choices. It's something that you don't, you, you, there's no transparency into the, how the algorithms work. All these things are something that a, a aware media consumer needs to, to um, learn. Uh, and if you don't know, and if you don't learn these things, you, um, you cannot be, I would claim that you will not be able to, to exercise your, your citizenship. You, you can easily become um, a useful idiot of someone. And I think, unfortunately, that uh, some of the forces that, that is moving the world at the moment is way ahead of, of um, the democratic forces who wants the citizens to be empowered in this sense. Um, they're making a lot of money on it. <laughs> mm. and, and, of course, that's why it's important that, that we that represent democratic states and they're in those positions, we want to guard um, the, the, the common good, if I, if I may say so. It's a big word, but still, some kind of idea of we are doing this for you guys. Uh, we want to have expertise so that we can try and under- make, you, make uh, you understand what you need to, to learn. Critical theorist and author John Greenaway, a.k.a. the lit crit guy. The reason that a lot of people who've been through very traumatic th- incidents in their own life find horror a kind of uh, a rewarding thing to watch is because it reminds you that monsters can be beaten. You know, maybe not all of us make it. You know, maybe not all of us survive the... the the, the mass man with the chainsaw, but monsters can be beaten. Vampires can be thrown back into their coffins. We should know that they're going to come back, but we should also know that we've dealt with them before. Official storyteller to NASA, J.O. O'Callaghan. I think the wonderful moments in our life are when we're part of something bigger. Could be the birth, could be the death, but you know, the death of a parent was huge when my dad died. Uh, but it's, it's part of... What, Life is also death, it's also loss, it's also birth, it's also discovery, it's also surprise. It's also, you know, going to this play. Amazing, how did they think of that? Emily Dickinson, how did she think of that? Mm. The crickets sang and set the sun. She does that all the time. Crickets are these little ordinary things and then set the sun. She jumps to the cosmic. Yeah. So in a way, she is, she is us. She's lightning. The universe in a grain of sand. Yes, yeah. yes, the same thing. Yeah. In a grain of sand, yeah. 
Fantastic. Jay, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You're a wonderful interviewer. This is such fun. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. And thank you for being part of the MTF podcast and part of this incredible MTF community. Special thanks to Clutch Daisy, aka The Manual Labour, for helping to compile all these clips for this episode. To the team, Jake, Michaela, Sergio, Mars, Run Dreamer. The MTF podcast is now going to take a little break to take a deep breath and we'll be back soon with more conversations with brilliant people just like this. In the meantime, feel free to go digging through the back catalogue. As you've heard, there's a lot in there to explore, and we've had to leave out far more than we could include. So stay safe, take care, and we'll speak soon. Cheers. Cheers.